Welcome to the Fatty Z Muskie Podcast. I'm Andy. Joined on the phone, I have Vance. Hi, Vance. Hello. I have Ranger. Hi, Ranger. Nothing, like always. I got Todd. Hi, Todd. I'm here. There you go. And we have Kevin Jobs again. How are you? How you doing? Oh, we're doing all, all right here. Um, this show is brought to you by Fatty Z Muskie Products. FattyZMuskie.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I also have a really inactive YouTube channel. Uh, every once in a while, I get another subscriber. I get a little email. Um, not that that matters anything, but uh, you can you can find the baits on the website. You can also find it Musky Tackle online. Um, Aaron carries a nice, healthy assortment of standard colors. Fast shipping, reasonable prices, free shipping over seventy five. So, if you're looking for something. Um, you know, check him out. He has stuff probably more than me. When it comes to the exclusive colors, Jeff at Team Rhino, look him up, see his colors. They're beautiful. I painted them. That's why they're beautiful. I'm kidding. They're nice though. Nothing. I'm, I'm getting nothing. No feedback. All right. I was just all alone. I was just they waiting. Are. I'm just. I'm like, am I alone on this? All right. You lost me at exclusive. Okay, because well, I didn't use I'm the right word? For, yeah. Okay. Um, and then the rod holders, uh, hop on the website, shoot me an email. I, my phone number is on the website as well if you have any questions. And I'll be more than happy to answer any questions. Reach out any of the outlets, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the website, my phone. And uh, I'll be glad to help you out, you know, with the rod holder journey. Uh, that's enough about me. So here's Todd. Muddy Creek Fishing Guides, mcfishingguides.com. Give us a call. Very limited dates here in September. Vance has got a few popping up last week of the month here. Uh, fall's coming, hopefully. It was still pretty warm out there the last day or two, but uh, fall's on its way. We get some really nice fish. This is the time. Uh, give us a call. We'll do our best to get you out there and get you on some fish. We will go through first week or two in November and, uh, that's about it, man. It's you're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, you got like six I'm, weeks left. Yeah, I'm a little wore maybe out, eight I'll weeks. Be honest. Yeah, yeah, about eight weeks. A little wore out. I'll be fishing there uh, in November while you guys are going to be chasing deer. I'll be chasing deer. Days. I'll be chasing deer in two weeks. You'll be chasing deer way, yeah, way before that, yeah. I've been getting I've been getting Todd back on some of these bookings. <laughs> Sometimes Todd gets to be choosy and stuff like that, and I I booked uh, Todd up some really late November days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Can't wait, Can't wait for that yeah. little snow. You send me that picture of the snow on the mm-hmm. yeah. boat. We're sliding around in <laughs> ice. Great. Yeah. I, I think this would be a, a... Todd, you had an interesting story that I, I heard some cliff notes on from Vance. Do you want to talk about that one or no? I have no idea what story it would be. You, you, you guys, it was a two-boat trip, older guys. Oh, no. No, yeah. that one. That one. That one. No. 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 Okay. People are going to be asking. If you want to know what happened, here's Todd's number. 
Yeah. <laughs> We're doing the numbers out there. Yeah. All right. Well, I thought it'd be good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm just over <laughs> two right now. Yeah. But well, you'll, know, you'll, you'll get back at it. I'm going to get back at it with St. Croix Rods. How about that? That sounds good. All right. Excellent. So you're looking for a fishing rod. Might as well look at St. Croix. They've been doing it for a long time. Mostly made in the USA. You can find them at many retailers. Go in there, grab one, pick it up, see how it feels. You know, give it a once over. And if it fits the bill, take it home with you. Easy. Saves on shipping. So that's my little my little quick thing there for St. Croix. Absolutely. Ranger Boats, big shout out to them. Uh, and of course, Vic Sports Center in Kent, Ohio. Check them out for service. Um, and for all your boating needs, they sell Starcraft, Star Welds, and the Ranger Boats uh, that Todd and I are fishing out of, and we love them. But check them out. Winter's coming around. Give your boat a nice once over before you put it away. Uh, yeah, check them out. Hey, but you forgot to say, you guys might be fishing out of them, but I own two. So, you do. There you go. You own two. I own two. All right. One's so for sale. I'm going yeah, to say I'm one for four right now. So, <laughs> there you go. All right. Is there any wraps today, Todd? There's no wraps. But I would like to talk about Muskie's Inc. Very important. Get involved in your local Muskie Inc. chapter. Find your chapter. Lots of good stuff going on there. You can get involved with the lunge log, uh, local tournaments. You see that stuff popping up on Facebook all the time. They have tour- you know, the, they have all these different clubs are putting on tournaments. They're a lot of fun. I know here in PA, they had to cancel one this past weekend because of the monsoons we had. They would have been fishing in literally like in the streets of uh, – downtown pittsburgh but uh yeah get a hold of of your local chapter it's our sounding voice national organization you can get stuff done by using your local muskie Inc. chapter as far as getting you know seasons changed help help with stocking uh minnow funds ohio does it pa does it i'm sure lots of the other states do it too but you know fundraisers that all comes down through the local Muskie and chapter. So get a hold of them. Very important for our sport. I like it. All right, Kevin, do you have any plugs? Uh, I do not. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll make it nice and easy for you guys. Okay. Well, everybody, we have Kevin on the phone. Yep. He's our little fish biologist. And, uh, is, is that a good title for you? I know we were, we were discussing that at the last show that we did with you. Has anything changed? Um, I mean, technically, I was just hired as a fisheries biologist, so you can say that now. It's official. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's why I've been randomly all over the place when you guys have been trying to get a hold of me recently. A lot of things changing, a lot of moves taking place. Exciting times. (laughs) That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, So are you moving away from your spot in Maine? I am, unfortunately. I'll be in New England still, just quite a bit further south, so where there's a lot more uh, need for migratory fish restoration work. So more important place to be, just maybe not as ideal when it comes to recreational activities. <laughs> so, but that's okay. great. Well, man, I, I wanted to tell you, I did have someone in 
my boat in the last couple of weeks from Maine and was talking really? about those those same lakes that you were talking about driving way up north. Oh yeah, to fish for the muskies. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Did they say they got any of any size up there? No, they've been chasing them. It's just been the, the same thing as you were saying. You were saying we just take this track and go up and where they were from. Uh, he was originally from there. He's not in Maine right now, but you know, he was taught. That's how he got the interest. And he was talking about these six hour drives to fish. I know it was the yep. same bodies of water. So oh, yeah. I, yeah, I thought that was, was pretty neat. Yeah. yeah, no, it's fantastic. <laughs> there's very, very few yeah. of us up here doing it. So it's, yeah. it's always funny yeah. when you run into people. Mm-hmm. So are there any musky lakes where you're going? There's one tiger musky lake that they just started stocking and another tiger musky lake that is private that there's no way to get access to um mm. so the closest place for me is going to be new jersey okay or you guys in new york <laughs> there you go and so how, i'll probably be making runs to canada ottawa area maybe i don't know yeah. we'll see yeah. it's because where i where i'm going now is too far it's going to be Oh, five, six, seven, eight and a half, nine hours from where I'm going to. So, unfortunately, maybe once a year I'll make it up there now, which is yeah. okay. Give me a break for a little bit. About how far are you from Chautauqua, hour-wise, where, you know, your new place? Um, probably about five hours, maybe four and a half. I'm trying to think. I worked up in Baldwin, Baldwinsville for a while, so still not quite near you guys, and that was like a six-hour haul. So, it's probably closer to six hours, honestly. Uh-huh. That's still a drive. It is. It is. But I might have to might have to make it happen and start seeing what's around New Jersey too. Plus there's all those flathead catfish and everything down there now, so that'll keep me occupied and I'll probably get back into surf casting a lot, so I won't stop fishing. Actually you guys will be probably sickened to hear that I'm a carp fisherman when I have carp around for most part. So, so I'll be back on the carp right. fishing really, really heavy. Okay, so what you're saying is that if you had a lake that had carp and muskie, you would choose the carp? Uh, probably 50-50. It would depend on the mood I was feeling. It would depend how big the carp were. If the carp were over 40 pounds, then probably 80-20 on the carp. I know that sounds terrible, but there's just something about fishing for them. I do it like the European style with all the bite alarms and all the baiting and spending many days out there. and It's just it's more of a... I don't know, social event with friends, and it's more yeah. relaxing. I like the muskie fishing by myself and just spending days grinding it out. So a little bit a little bit different. I guess I've been doing so much of the muskie fishing, and I, there's no carp up where I am now. So talk to me in a year. It'll probably be a solid 50-50 if I had to guess. Hmm. Yeah, the carp are really fun. You get a 40-pound carp, it takes sometimes a half an hour to land. They're just, I don't know, they're very tricky to catch at that size. So it's kind of the same... Same excitement as trying to get a big muskie, just a lot more relaxed. <laughs> I, I got yeah. a big carp once, and I'm trying to remember. It, it's been some years. I want to think it was like 37 pounds, but it, it did not. Fish. It did not put up the fight that you talked about. Um, Interesting. Because I put an arrow through its side. Oh yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> so <laughs> it didn't. It, it fought for a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they don't tend to fight as hard when that happens. <laughs> no, no, they they don't. But it, it was in this little private lake that's like behind my parents' house. I, I I've talked about it a time or two on the show. But you know, I, I 
the lake has changed a lot, you know, in the last 30 years or so since I can actually remember fishing back there. And this is probably, oh gosh, maybe 12 years ago, 15 years ago when I shot it. But there's like a whole bunch of them in there. And there's no babies. So I, I they were put in there to help control the yep. weed population. And it, it was, I, I don't. I don't think it made a difference except it seemed like all of our bass got smaller and you know, who knows, but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, so I asked you, oh gosh, probably a couple months ago to do some research about the hot button topic during the summer months and that's high water temperature. And, I didn't want to hear the results of what you found. I just said, let's, let's, <laughs> let's get this. Let's lay out what you found. And we're not going to sit here and try to sway people that this is the right way or this is the wrong way. There seems to be essentially like most things. You can boil it down to two groups of people. The don't fish the high water temps, which the magical number is 80 degrees. And I have seen in recent years people start trying to pull that number lower. And then I have other people that say, screw it, this is my vacation, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And then big fights erupt on various forms of social media. And there's no winners except the groups divided. So, anyways, tell us about how you how you first started tackling this when I kind of threw that assignment at you. Yeah, so the first thing I did was go right to the forums just because I really don't read forums all that much and when you brought it up i'd heard it on your show before but i've kind of i don't know i tend to i don't know figure things out on my own the best i can so i tend to stay away from the forums um so i went in there just to read and it's definitely a very hot button issue Mm -hmm. (laughs) very Mm -hmm. passionate responses with a lot of research um and some people you know try and get some really hard scientific research to you know kind of argue both sides of it um i started there just to try and i don't know formulate where i wanted to go with it and then i kind of settled on like you said that 80 degree mark Mm -hmm. and then i just i really wanted to look into the physiology of fish and like i you know said to you guys before we started here i'm not a fish physiologist at all far from it um and i'm also not a chemical hydrologist so anything dealing with dissolved oxygen you know it's feel free please to you know dig deeper anybody listening and you know, send in anything that you see that may be a little bit different than what I found. But what I did once I settled on that was I went into, because I'm still working with the university, I have access to scientific journals. So I went to the scientific journals because it's the peer-reviewed literature. So it has to go through a very rigorous process before it's um, actually published. So pretty much that's where I got all my information from. Um, I tried to stay off the Internet if possible, just because it's really hard to actually go through and get a good citation for where the information comes from. Um, basic diagrams for where, you know, dissolved oxygen comes from. It's, that stuff's really hard to mess up. Anybody can go and look that up, and it's very helpful because it makes it much simpler to understand. But outside of that, it's I pretty much just research like crazy um, and now have a bunch of notes that are very scattered and all over the place, and hopefully I can answer the questions that you guys come up with here but yeah that was the process okay well then unless Vance and Todd have something they want to comment on that I'll kind of start wading into this one do you guys have anything yeah no start going Vance you awake good yeah okay all right so 
this magical 80 degree mark, does anything really crazy happen? Like, I, I think I already know the answer, but so water temperature goes up and then its ability to hold dissolved oxygen goes down. Yes. Is there like some kind of crazy spike at 80 degrees or is that just some like LD 50 mark for, for muskies? Um, it, it, or is it just somewhat fairly linear on that? So what I found, and I think the reason that 80 exists, is probably because that's on the higher end of a muskie's temperature preference. Um, so a bunch of the papers that I found show for like an average temperature preference for everyday summer life of a muskie. It's 71, 72 degrees Fahrenheit. It's deep. That's like their perfect temperature. Um, they've done studies where they actually have, um, there's a lake in Tennessee where because it's a flood control reservoir and there's bottom releases, the water is constantly cycling through, so there's no thermocline setting up. So these fish don't, they're not limited by dissolved oxygen there. So they can choose, but they're using that as temperature preference. Um, it's basically a really large scale experimental design. So you don't have to worry about the fish going somewhere to find more oxygen. They're going just where they want to be based on temperature. And that's what they found was you know, 71, 72 degrees. Um, and they found here, let me just bring up the actual numbers because I thought it was pretty interesting. Okay, well, I'm going to um, stop you real quick right there. So yep. I want to make sure that this this is, you know, people can understand this. So there's a flood control, and this is kind of like Kinzu. Kinzu, they can release, I believe, from the top and the bottom of the, of the dam. And... So what they're doing here in Tennessee is they're pulling, when they let water out of this, this impoundment, it's coming out of the bottom. So what would typically be the coldest water in summer, if, if your lake could stratify, would be being dumped out and then it's getting replaced by warmer water. So you're not getting this cold layer, warm layer that have a different amount of dissolved oxygen, correct? Exactly. Okay. So it's exactly. more homogeneous throughout. Exactly. Okay. Continue. And, yeah, so what they found was pretty much it was 77 degrees Fahrenheit. The fish pretty much didn't go past that. And the So, actually, I guess I should explain this better. So what they did was they actually put an internal tag in these fish that measured the temperature. And then they you know, were able to see what kind of temperature these fish were experiencing. So of all the fish they put out, they put out 30 individuals, I believe was the number, there was only one instance where a fish went to 81.5 degrees Fahrenheit. And other than that, those fish pretty much stayed below 77 degrees Fahrenheit. And they tend tended to put themselves between 71 and 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, so when, when it went, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, 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 you're good. When it went to 81 on that data, did it show it like stayed there for a while? Or was it like an 81 because it got caught or something. That's a good. That's a good question. I don't remember seeing anywhere where they said how long it was there, other than that it was basically quick and it was very rare that fish would go to such a temperature. And I wonder. I wonder if that was the case. Like it got like jigged up or something, yeah. caught, and it was like it just spiked there for for. Uh, it might have been there when it when the thing pinged. I mean, was there? Was it like an interval, like every five, ten, fifteen hour? The, the the thing would send the ping back or I don't remember what it was um, the research that we do here it's usually 30 seconds um, the problem is depending on how
how often you get a reading, the tag battery will die faster. Mm-hmm. So if they were trying to get it throughout the course of the entire summer, and say you're limited to 180 days, based at 30 seconds, they could still get away with more than 30 seconds. They could cut that in half and do every 15 seconds. Um, but my guess was it was probably not, you know, every few hours. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I can, you know, look that up. But it for the for most studies, it's usually we try to keep things like 30 seconds to a minute or so, just just for that. Right, because um, it would be like really... battery. Oh, right, you'd be like, yeah, every, every seven days we get a reading. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's not... So it, it could, based off of your experience, you know, it, it, it's not an extreme length of time. Um, no. Okay. No. So, and I, I think what it comes down to with that 80-degree mark is that's, I think it's probably most likely, and I've seen this too, releasing fish, when you start getting temperatures around that area, the fish, it's, it's much harder to get those fish to revive um, quickly. So you can get them to come back, but, I mean, this summer we got a fish... It was a fairly large, it was a 44-inch fish, but it was extremely fat. Um, and when we went to go release it, it, I literally had to, you know, I just set the trolling motor and just held the fish in the water and just did circles to get her to revive. And it wasn't a very long fight or anything, and the water was probably about 76 to 78. And before that, we never had any of the fish act that way, and on that day, every fish we caught was kind of that same, right, just lethargically swimming away, and it's... My guess is most of that comes from you can you know you can look online you can look at temperature preferences for fish and a lot of times they'll show for muskies say I don't know seventy one to eighty one and a half or something like that and so I think people see the higher end they see how fish respond and my guess is that's probably where most of these numbers have come from um, I don't know for sure I don't know if you know some magazine or something had published some you know number that wasn't necessarily arbitrary but people grabbed onto that mm-hmm. I, I just wasn't able to find anywhere where it specifically said that. And the majority of the studies dealing with, um, say, hooking mortality, they were done in Canada. So the highest temperatures reached were like 78.8, was the highest I mm-hmm. remember seeing on one of these studies. So it's really hard to kind of say, oh, well, it was a study that set that number when I couldn't find any published scientific data suggesting 80 as that limit. Just that higher water temperatures um, past the point that they measured to does increase mortality hmm. so unfortunately i don't have exactly why it's 80 um but i think that's probably it's it's what i've seen and what a lot of people see with trying to get those fish to come back so i'm not sure if you guys have seen anywhere that it's well was there would it be some kind of like intersective dissolved oxygen like it's it might not be are we using water temperature in exchange for dissolved oxygen levels could it could it be a they prefer this much oxygen versus you know uh, uh, this is their preference on the temperature scale or dissolved oxygen think, scale that mimics a well if you take so if you take eighty point six degrees Fahrenheit that's kind of a a number that's given in the charts for distilled water to hold oxygen so if you take fresh distilled water you put it to eighty point six degrees Fahrenheit you max out how much oxygen it can hold at eight point one parts per million. But muskies can, I don't remember if it's survive, but they prefer above four parts per million, with I believe six to eight being, I mean, eight being probably exactly where they want to be, um, but a preference of between six to eight parts per million. So in theory, if you can get 8.1 parts per million into 80-degree water, assuming none of the other things that can change that 
um, amount of dissolved oxygen. It probably isn't based on dissolved oxygen, just from you know looking at it from a strictly scientific number, because dissolved oxygen, it's not just water temperature that's going to affect that. What so, else? What else could affect the oxygen in the water? So not related to this, but just for people to know, salinity is a big one. Um, but also, so say you have, if you're trying to supersaturate your your water, so you're trying to get to the 8.1 parts per million, that's assuming distilled water in a lab setting. So there's nothing else using that oxygen. So dissolved oxygen comes in, in the most basic form, it comes into the water during you know, wind events, rain events, any kind of inflowing streams, and also photosynthesis through plants. So as those plants are... Know, using light to photosynthesize, they're giving off oxygen to the air and the water. So that's how the oxygen is getting into the water. But oxygen is also being used at night when those plants aren't producing any. Um, it's being used by bacteria in the water. It's being used by the fish. So the chances of getting it to that 8.1 at that temperature with all of those things going on is highly unlikely. Um, I guess I'm just saying that from a strictly scientific standpoint, I don't think you could say that at 80 degrees Fahrenheit, there's not enough oxygen, because in theory, you could get that much oxygen into the water. It's just other things are going on. And also, you know, physiologically, within the fish at that temperature, now there's a lot of different factors that we can, you know, come to at some point tonight that will also affect that need for oxygen. I realize it's a very roundabout way of trying to answer that. I apologize. There's a lot of information in my brain at the moment. <laughs> No, no, no. I, I think that that's great that's because great. it's just going to keep daisy chaining these questions. So <clears throat> yep. kind of like recap is like if you could envision like a bucket full of dissolved oxygen being completely saturated, there's a lot of holes in this bucket of things pulling from it. So exactly. while the, you know, if muskies need four parts per million, but 80.6 can hold eight parts per million, that's, that's in perfect absolute lab conditions. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, so all that stuff that's happening, like you said, so I'm almost, when you said like the plants stop putting oxygen in, you know, during the night and stuff like that, I'm like, oh man. So really it's like the sun goes down and this is very simplified, boiled down. It's just like everyone hold your breath because we don't want to run out here. Whereas like for our air, it's like, yeah, there's always going to be air here. Yeah. There, there, there can be a threat. And that, is that what happens like with winter kill? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing with winter kills is, so you have, now all of a sudden you have that ice cover. So mm -hmm. you've lost your, your rain, your wind influence. So it's, your wind cycling isn't bringing oxygen anymore. And then you have all of these plants that, you know, you can go under, you know, you see when you're ice fishing, you bring up, there's a lot of live green plants still, but a lot of those plants die off and they're rotting away, and the bacteria that's on those rotting plants using up all that oxygen. So we have really shallow lakes that have winter kills, so very shallow, weedy lakes. That just, it's basically those bacteria use up all the oxygen that the fish are trying to use, and that's why when the ice thaws out, you have all these very large dead fish and sometimes very small dead fish because they're affected more by that limited oxygen. So you'll see often the biggest fish in your lake are what will die. Sometimes we'll see when the ice thaws out, we get a bunch of young of the year fish from the year before, so basically almost one-year-old fish that die. And I'm not sure how that associates. I just know that with larger size, there's more demand on oxygen. Um, that's why you find those very large, mature fish that die. You know, you'll see a bunch of very large bluegills, all about the same size class that will die. And that's the same same theory there, same ideas. 
the bacteria on the, that are feeding on those rotting plants do. They use up all the oxygen, and the fish just, there's no other way to get oxygen. You'll see, you ever see in a fish tank where the fish are, it looks like they're gasping for air on the surface of the water? Yeah. Yeah. It, what's actually happening there, there are some fish that can air, they can, you know, mouth breathe, they can bring in atmospheric oxygen, but when you see those, you know, tank fish in your house, what they're actually doing is they're gasping at the very surface of the water because that's the only oxygen that's left where it's just barely mixing because they need, it needs to be dissolved oxygen that they're bringing in through their gills. So they're going back and forth across the surface of the water trying to get that little bit of dissolved oxygen that's right at the very surface as it's mixing. But below that, there's just nothing. It's all been used up for whatever reason. So they're not actually breathing from the surface. They're trying to grab that dissolved oxygen that's right on the very surface. Sounds like a very yep. horrible life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, like... Dissolved oxygen, you talked about waves and, and the wind in the streams and stuff like that. Just having the air blow across the top of the, of the lake is enough to get oxygen into the water. As I said, from a, a non-chemical hydrologist standpoint, yes, it's that wave action. So that little bit of you know, surge on the surface of the water is enough, you know, crashing on the rocks on shore. It's when I've lost power for, you know, a couple days at a time in my fish tank and literally just pouring the water into the tank is enough to do it. I've never had to put an aerator or anything in there. Hmm. Just little, little bit of water, just a little bit of oxygen can get in there to those pathways. Okay. But again, it's, it's, this isn't a, I'm sure there's a much better answer for that there's a lot of variables that i just know nothing about from the simplest term right simplest form yeah that's it if we're going to just do reader's digest here it's going to be waves equal more more dissolved oxygen oxygen. yep heavy rains all any any kind of surface break okay interesting okay so let's kind of like rewind back here so i i brought up the question before we went off on that little side thing was um Temperature, dissolved oxygen, are they really after the dissolved oxygen versus a temperature? And we kind of said that, you know, it probably isn't. So getting back to that 71-ish that they prefer, was there anything else crazy with, you know, that water temperature, like in terms of would they prefer that if, like, let's just say the lake was 71 in the middle of, like, the water column, top of the water column, bottom did, did water depth have anything to do with it? Um, so some of the studies that I've read suggested a lot of it is to do with, you know, bait or structure. Mm-hmm. So reasons for those fish to actually want to be somewhere. They're willing to take, you know, maybe a hit to their oxygen, dissolved oxygen, or a hit to their temperature based on some other resource that they need. Um, and it, again, it depends on the time of the year, too. So there was some of the stuff that I read would, you know, those fish, as after the spawn, tended to be a little bit deeper until the structures that they use, say a weed line, is more advanced. So they'll be off on deep rocky structures, and then they'll move into those shallower areas of the weeds where they're going to stay until those weeds die off in some lakes. Um, so I think it's, I, I, I think the temperature and the dissolved oxygen, though they're, you know, probably the most demanding, it's any kind of resource limitation that those fish need to fill, they're going to have to move towards that um and they're gonna have to you know basically take a hit on some other resource that they need i think that's probably what you're seeing with fish moving around like that um you know there's definitely this summer it's quite warm up here 
and we had fish that you know, probably after we stopped fishing continued feeding in very shallow parts of the impoundment we fish um but again it's it's different in the sense that um, there's two terms that i'm going to use here that are really important to understand um and it's so you have um an aerobic demand for oxygen and also an anaerobic demand so aerobic being just as that fish is just swimming around and going about its normal day it's using it's able to bring in that oxygen through its gills put it in the blood supply and cycle it through anaerobic would be when the body it can't keep up with the muscle demand for oxygen so it's not just basic swimming it's now you've hooked this fish think about the difference between walking and then doing sprints up a hill now the fish is in an anaerobic state um and it's it's actually has to use limited fuels within its muscles which that's when you start hearing about lactic acid buildup and all these other uh-huh. scenarios but the most important thing to think about that is anaerobic is now we've hooked that fish so maybe this fish is in 82 degree fahrenheit water and it's doing okay it's swimming around it's able to feed you know maybe it's you know relying on burst speed which is anaerobic but it's quick it grabs whatever the fish is grabbing and then it hunkers back down and it goes through the process of recovery when you hook a fish and you ask that fish to fight for even if it's one or two minutes at that temperature with that elevated metabolism due to the warm water you're asking that fish to put a very large anaerobic demand. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to say, really, until you've hooked that fish, how that temperature affects and the, the dissolved oxygen is affecting that fish. So I don't, that 80-degree mark, obviously we see fish. I'm sure you guys see it too when you have very warm surface temperatures. Those fish are still up in the weeds feeding. And they yeah. seem to be doing okay, and that's why I think a lot of people are probably, oh, it's fish born. They seem to be fine. What happens after that, It really, it, it's how that fight takes place, how the fish is handled. It's, that, it's a whole different experience. You just have to think about yourself literally just getting up from the couch, walking to the you know, refrigerator and sitting back down. It's very easy for you. You're not tired. But if you had to run you know, up 115 flights of stairs to do that same thing, you're going to be feeling a whole lot different, and you're going to have to recover. And the warmer it gets, the longer that recovery time is. So I know that kind of got off topic there. Um, but that's a really important way you have to think about this when we're looking at that 80-degree temperature mark. We're not just looking at the fish going about its normal process. Yeah. The, the muskies don't mind that 80-degree temperature. It's, it's well within non-lethal limits. I couldn't find exactly what a lethal you know, maximum temperature is for a muskie, but I'm sure that's not even close to it. I'm sure they can go you know, quite a few degrees past that. But it's when you ask them to start performing tasks that they're not prepared to perform and wouldn't be performing themselves that it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Talk about okay. So, um, you you talk that you know they can just swim around naturally, like get up, go to the you know get off your couch, go to the fridge, and then they have this when they're when they're asked to perform a task, like catch food, fight an angler that that has them hooked. Yep. They they have a limited like reserve. Is this reserve yep. just like? Like body fat, or is it just like, hey, we're going to have this Coming like little from the muscle? Okay, is, is yeah, there like extra under... oxygen in there or something? Or it's, so this is. I'm trying. This is and this is kind of where it goes outside of right. um, my knowledge base. But the idea basically being so that oxygen demand this surpasses what oxygen can do. So you have that initial. They have the oxygen in their blood. They're using it, but now they surpass that. So there's no oxygen. So now you're dealing with. It's, it's a muscle demand, so there's, 
is the white muscle tissue, I guess is the best way to put it. And they're using that white muscle tissue. It's, I'm trying to think how to word this in a way that makes sense. It's, it's just that there's a limited fuel source within their muscle, I guess is the simplest way to say that. And to use that, there's a, it's a large physiological stress on the fish. And after they've performed that task, then there's a recovery period. And there's also waste chemicals that are, you need to work through. And those are like the lactic acid. We can go into this glucose, potassium. There's all these different things that happen that can negatively affect that fish during that recovery time. And it's not immediate. So you could, you could catch that fish. It could be extremely stressful for the fish. You get that fish to revive. And then for some of these chemicals, it's, you know, up to an hour. And for others, up to 12 hours that that fish is recovering from that fight. So you could have you know, a delayed mortality on that fish. You see the fish swim away, but you could have a negative effect on that fish that you didn't even realize because you saw the fish swim away with no problems. Um, mm -hmm. It's, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different, things coming into this okay well let's let's dive in is there just like one two or three major major ones that come in like the lactic acid and whatever yeah. the else stuff so there was a really cool study that they did up in canada where they actually went out and it was a catch and release study so they wanted to see they know it was very they know that musky fishermen are specialized so they actually went onto like YouTube and watched videos of musky fishermen and how they handled the fish, how they fought the fish, how they net the fish, how the fish, how long was the fish was in the net, how they removed, did they use pliers, did they use hook cutters, did the fish come out of the water for a photo op, did it not come out, and they basically went in there and standardized what a specialized musky angler does when they get a fish, and they standardized that, and then they used, so basically they said, they fight the fish, the fish is net for two minutes, they use regular pliers, and if within two minutes they couldn't get the hook out, then they cut the hooks with hook cutters. And then they had up to 90 seconds of time out of the water for pictures. Ooh. And they use that as kind of their, this is what is commonly seen. But then what they did was they wanted to compare that to, all right, we net the fish, we use hook cutters, we never take the fish out of the water. We release the fish. And what they did was as soon as they were done with whatever process they used, they immediately took that fish, took a blood sample, and then ran it and looked to see what the blood looked like. They also went out and electrofished, so these fish did not have to fight. So um, when you're electrofishing, the fish is initially stunned, but they very quickly come back, and they haven't been fought. So um, just for instance, so it'll make more sense. We fish for striped bass. You fight a striped bass. You're able to lift the striped bass, you know, say a 40-pound striped bass. You're able to lift that fish, get the lure out, and release that fish. Well, we went out and did some electrofishing, and we had two striped bass that were a 40-pound class in the live well. And then we went to go work those fish up, and me thinking, okay, I've held thousands of these fish. I'm just going to grab it. Well, I went to go grab it, and it wasn't tired. It, hadn't, it wasn't going through that recovery period from a long fight because it was just stunned and came right back. And when I grabbed the fish, I couldn't hold it. It actually dislocated my thumb, shaking its head around. <laughs> wow. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe it because I like, literally grabbed you know, a few dozen fish they were up to this size, I could, you know, this isn't going to be a problem. And just blew me away. I couldn't believe it. So that's, so they use that as their control. So these are fish that did not have to go through that catch and release process. And what they found was that the glucose levels and the lactate levels, so those concentrations, were significantly lower for fish that were just electrofish. So the fish that did not have to fight. Um, and then they found that those glucose levels and potassium levels 
they actually increased significantly with surface water temperatures, and it was within the catch-and-release fish also higher. So, interestingly, there wasn't a difference physiologically or behaviorally between the two release groups. So those fish that were out of the water for 90 seconds didn't have a difference in their blood compared to the fish that were never leaving the water. However, this is, again, there could be that delayed effect, but immediately there was not an effect between those two um, catch-and-release techniques. But what was interesting is that they actually found no mortality following those specialized techniques. So it's, they, don't, they suggested that you know, no mortality, like having no mortality at all, is never attainable in recreational fishing. You just won't. No. Um, but in this study, they actually found that they were able to. Um, and looking back at those, as you said, like the, the glucose, the lactate, the potassium, things like potassium are important because, so in mammals, elevated potassium levels can actually lead to like coronary attacks. Um, so in, with fish, it affects the nerves and it affects the heart. So elevated levels of potassium following a stressful event like that could leave, lead to that post-release mortality. Um, and the lactate and the glucose, it's, it's honestly, it's quite a bit over my head, but the glucose is basically it's providing fuel for the tissues, such as like the heart, the liver, the gills, um, to basically in response to that stressful event. So it's, it's for healing is the way I understand it the most. And also you lactate production during that um, elevated glucose event. So it's, they can use those as basically indicators of how stressed a fish is. It's in the simplest way of putting it. So they kind of use that to see, all right, so we've caught these fish using rod and reel. We've net these fish, and we've used generally what people are doing. It's obviously they had to, it's really hard to take, you know, a bunch of people and say, okay, this is roughly what everybody's doing. Um, and then looked at those, those rates. So that's kind of honestly all I know about those different, chemical concentrations, it's, again, without that physiology background, it's it's kind of a stretch, but I hope that gets kind of the basic idea across. Okay, I, I want to I jump back because I, I found that I want to make sure I understood this. So the people that monkeyed around in the net for a while and then held the fish yeah. out for up to a minute and a half, yep. the, the fish, the, the, the blood in the fish was the same or very close to as someone that comes up and just does a water release and, and, and sends them off. Statistically, that's what they found, yes. But there was no difference physiologically or behaviorally between those release groups because all of these fish were also radio tagged and released afterwards. So they were able to track where these fish went, how far they moved out, how deep they were in response to what they believed to be or in response to that angling event. And, yeah, they found that statistically there was no difference was, between those two, which was amazing to me. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that is amazing. That yeah, blew my mind. Is. And uh, so what they did, they wanted to stress though that that first angling group, the people who were you know monkeying around, they did want to stress that it was still very specialized um, compared to how people outside of musky fishing would treat a musky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of that. I think that's kind of what their point was. That listen, this is still above and beyond a lot more. I don't really want to say respectful, but they're they're. A lot more care is put into the fish in this situation than, say, somebody who accidentally caught it is now freaking out and wants to show it off, but still plans on releasing it. Yes, but they're flopping around in the boat, and you make a trolling yep. pass, and they're still monkeying with it in the bottom exactly. of the boat. So, exactly. <laughs> it, it, so they're saying the musky guys are doing their best. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah pretty much. Their best. 
Yeah, the yeah. fact that there was no mortality mm-hmm. is amazing mm-hmm. for a catch and release study with a least a year. It was seventy-seven muskies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's more than. Is, that's good. Now, yeah, and it's go ahead. Um, I was just going to say that the the researchers pretty much they you know they said that they were very I don't want to say surprised but it sounded like they were you know really giving the musky community a pat on the back and saying like these people have gone above and beyond what's expected of most recreational fishermen when it comes to catch and release fishing. Um, and I think I, I honestly I think musky Inc. was mentioned in there. It is basically just talking about that the fact that you know you have this group of anglers who really cares about the resource. It's trying to do everything the best they possibly can. And so it was a really cool mm-hmm. read because it was, it was, you know, dealing with recreation. They had recreational fishermen going out and doing the study. They had them go out and fish, and the research boat followed them around. And as soon as they got a fish, you know, the stopwatch started, and they took a water surface temperature and just started going through the whole process. So very organized science, but with a group of recreational fishermen. So it was a really interesting study for sure. I think they learned a lot from it. Is there... Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a very simple question here, yep. but I think a lot of the guys can probably relate to this. So this is the one thing I was here. Well, you know, I don't see them floating out here. Uh, so the, your average fish that you catch and has this delayed mortality. Yep. Does that average fish that dies, does it sink to the bottom and rot away and never come to the surface? Or does a dead fish, something that dies from something like this, is that fish going to surface? That's a very good question. Um, just from my experience, being on the water and being in similar places multiple times, it seems like some do and some don't. I know it's a really okay. probably unsatisfactory answer for that, but I've seen, mm-hmm. um, especially in places where guys, so guys bow hunt a lot of carp, as mm-hmm. we've talked about, and a lot of people shoot them and then just throw them back in the water. And sometimes you see them floating, but honestly, most of the time, you find them near shore sitting on the bottom. So I I really don't know. I have yet to see a muskie floating, but again, I just don't have people fishing really in the areas I'm fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's If you go on to a lake that, say, has a bunch of stocked trout in it, I see fish floating quite often after, you know, say, opening day. You get a bunch of people on the water, a lot of catch, a lot of release but maybe not the best techniques taken. And you will see quite a few fish. And then the scent, well, you have those winter kills. It seems like when the ice comes out, the fish have, a lot of the fish have floated up under the ice. When you get ice out, they're all floating on the surface. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know if it, it's how the fish dies. I don't know if maybe because those fish are, you know, bow hunted, maybe it pops the air bladder. I, I'm honestly not 100% sure. It's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've had one for sure muskie die when I was reeling it in, I talked about the, it was a, like Andy's curse. This might've been two years ago when I did this one, but it, I, I gave it the old heave ho after I'm like, this thing's gone. It's completely dead. I just gave it the push out there. I was bank yanking and it went whoop, right down to the bottom. Yep. And yep. you know, I don't know. It might've been something when it died, was it's swim bladder, you know, inflated or not. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But, but my my thing is, even if it goes to the bottom, which some of them definitely do, that are dead. Mm-hmm. Does something happen? Uh, that they reinflate and come up? Yeah, yeah <laughs> they <laughs> plop it up eventually, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I I always thought like dead fish would eventually float. I yeah. it, uh, okay, 
So when we have someone drowned on Chautauqua, this is maybe not a great thing to talk about, but when, when, when a person drowns, they know that he's going, they, those people pop up <laughs> because of the stuff that's in your body. Yeah, just do the same thing a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I would think it's just a, a lot of something eat them, or you know, just stand yeah. turtle, get a hold of it and bite a hole in it, or did it get yeah. caught in the yeah. vegetation or under a log or rocks? Yeah, yep. yeah not, I think in theory, yeah, I think that through the, the you know as that fish is basically just disintegrating down there, I think it, it gives off gas, and I think in theory should flow back up. That's just, what I would always think. I mean, you know, that's what I would think, and we have floaters out here all the time. Yep. But it's a high population lake with a lot of guys fishing, and a lot of it is, are you know, some of the fish are fishing related. Some of the dead fish are because they have something, you know, red spot real bad. But, yep. uh, you know, for the amount of if there's this delayed mortality, I would think we would see more. Yeah. And uh, but I can see what you're saying. If something took a bite out of it down there. Turtle. Yeah. Just for some reason, <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't come mm-hmm. up. You know, I know that a lot of there's a lot of papers on that whole, you know, specialized catch and release fisheries. And mm-hmm. I think overwhelmingly so, if you look at any of the people will go through and they'll review, you know, say 50 to 100 papers or something. They'll go and they'll do a literature review. And I think what they found was that those specialized fisheries, often the catch and release mortality is below 5%. So mm-hmm. these fisheries where people mm-hmm. are really taking the time to follow best practices, mm-hmm. usually, and they said, you know, for some that it can be, you know, below 0.1%. So a lot of, again, going back to the common carp thing, um, if you look at any of the European fisheries, they treat these fish, and they put them in little, basically, uh, padded bathtubs when they take them out of the water and they take the hook out. They'll actually put, you know, antiseptic on the hook wounds. I mean, they treat them like this. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. how Because of those fish, you know, they have these small ponds with very few carp in them. The carp are named. People know the fish. They'll fish for a year trying to catch this one big fish. So they do not want that fish to die. So they're trying to get their mortality to zero. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what these papers are explaining when it, you're talking with a really specialized group of anglers, you know, they're putting a lot of time and a lot of money into the resource. They don't want the resource to fail. So it's, you know, yeah, it's, yeah I think it's quite common to have less than, you know, it's, I think a lot of people think, oh, catch and release, well, you're hooking them here, you're hooking them there. You're going to have a lot more fish dying than you think. But with these specialized fisheries, I think it's a lot less than some people think. You know, you want to try and minimize the, you know, the duration that you're angling that fish, that air exposure is minimized. You're trying to, you know, avoid extremes in water temp, as we're talking about here. A lot of people are using artificial lures, so you're, you know, you're getting away from that, you know, damage to the stomach from a swallowed hook. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they, a lot of these people won't angle during reproductive times or the fishery will be closed. So, you know, fish are reproducing at the very high-stress time for the fish. Again, it's similar to high water temp. And so these really specialized fisheries, they kind of look at that, you know, play it safe mentality. So I think it's, you know, we're definitely dealing with a fishery where there is a lot less loss than other fisheries when you're talking about yeah. catch and release angling, which is great. Was there anything brought up? I, I'm still, I want to run back to this 90 seconds out of water. Yep. How long does it take to suffocate a muskie? I don't know. Honestly, okay, because I really that, that ninety know. seconds, I, I thought they would have been gone. Because if I hold my breath for seven seconds, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't. There's so in the gills where you look down, you can see you know, all the little red filaments, those little lamella. Those will actually collapse if they're in the air for too long. 
And I don't know at what point that is with a muskie. I, I don't know if that work has been done or not, honestly. Um, and I, again, it kind of depends on the time of year as well. So if you have, you know, the air mm-hmm. is really warm, the fish is coming out of the water really stressed, the water is warm. I think it's probably less time. I just, just seeing how fish recover when we're working up fish in the field for science, it's very much, if we're working in the spring with cold water, we can keep that fish out of the water for longer than we can in the summer. So honestly, a lot of times we do spring, the electrofishing surveys are spring and fall. You don't do it in the summer. And here on the river where we work with salmon, past 22 degrees Celsius, we, we're, we, we aren't even allowed to work with the fish. There's federal regulation limiting our work with those fish. So in our permits, we're, we have to stop electrofishing. So, yeah, it's definitely... Uh, yeah, I hope that answered that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and that I, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just when when I heard ninety seconds was like, really? Yeah, that seemed yeah. like a very long time. But um, yeah, and I think that's again they, they based it off of I think it was they said um, they watched like fishing shows, YouTube videos, and tried to average that out. And I, I don't believe ice fishing was taken into account there. Um, obviously, with ice fishing, if you had a fish out for ninety seconds, I don't think a lot of people realize that you're actually going to frostbite those filaments on the gills mm-hmm. and i think a lot of fish die ice fishing people don't even realize because they're running around you start seeing the fish's eyes glossing over with the mm-hmm. crust those gills are fried it's it's i mean you anytime that we've ever kept fish i've kept an eye to see how things go um or like if we have a bait fish that you know we're we take out of the water i mean the gills are one of the first things to freeze up because especially if you're holding that fish now that that gill cover is wide open and if you're getting a strong wind and you've got a really cold wind chill it's yeah, it's not. It's not going to be. It doesn't take very long. Yeah. No, yeah. no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. And every, 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 all these, every, every muskie that you catch and put in the net is going to be a different situation. I'm sure. Exactly. I mean, yep. Uh, some of those things go in the net and they don't go into where they're in the bottom of the net and the head is hanging out. So, if it's yep. in the net for 30 seconds before you get it out, you might as well just say you were holding it for those 30 seconds. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and that that happens a lot in what in yep. what we do. Uh, most of you guys were doing all we can, you know, I was cutting hooks today and one was in the gill and bleeding and you do what you can to hurry up and get exactly. it back in the water. I told him we're not taking a picture. It's a little one. You've caught him like this. Yeah. Okay. Get it in there. Do your, do the best you can. That's all we're doing, you yep. know? And I think yep. most of the musky guys are doing that. That's, that's, oh, yeah, that's the neat thing to hear, you know, is that, you know, whether you're guiding or you're doing it recreationally, and there's no one that's out there. Everyone is doing their best. Exactly. Uh, what are we going to do? Stop fishing for them? Yep. Yep. Exactly. At the end of the day, you are fishing for something. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I it's going to be stressful no matter what you do. Yeah. I got yep. three big trebles, and I'm not trying to catch a 32 incher on that lure, but yep. it happens. Exactly. Yep. And they get stuck all through them. Yeah. At least for and, the uh, those smaller fish, they use less of that. Um, like there's less anaerobic exercise, so they recover faster. So if you do exactly. get those little ones, they're not affected as much. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, sometimes those little ones are the hardest ones to get off because they really just tangle themselves up in it. Oh god, yeah, gets yep. stuck everywhere. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, so the little ones can the little ones can recover. Yeah. The, so the bigger the bigger fish because the bigger fish is, you know, you can tell a bigger fish is on the other side of the line and those fights usually last a lot longer the little ones you can just bring right in but anytime you're dealing with those little ones you're just like oh my god this thing's like wiry as all hell i'm gonna get still going crazy yeah oh yeah yeah i'm gonna work in your 
yeah, you'll hear hear people be like, you know, these big ones are really nice. They're, uh, you know, easy to handle. You can stick your hand in there, you know, big gill plate. They just are kind of chill. Is it oh, because yeah. they're in that, they're, they're in that really, uh, that, that stressful recovery yep. mode where oh, yeah. if you grab those little ones, it's just like, they're still tail kicking and you're just like, okay, let's you know, yeah. get this thing back in the water. The larger fish can do more of that anaerobic exercise. Um, eventually it does hit, they say it hits like a plateau where those really, really large fish, it, they're really, at that point, adding more size of that fish isn't really giving them more. I think it's because that white muscle, just you're not making any more white muscle. Um, but because you're capable of more of that exercise, now you're going to have to recover a lot more. So that recovery yeah. time becomes a lot longer. That's why if you guys have ever tried to release a really big fish that had a, you know, it fought like crazy, but then it took just as long, if not a lot longer, to get that fish to recover. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, yeah. it's that same same idea. They can they can fight you a heck of a lot harder, but they're going to hurt a lot more because of it. That's the same thing that happens to me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're out of yeah, breath yeah, when you get out of bed? Can, <laughs> a lot of this stuff you can look at yourself and can, you'll go yeah. out a normal daily routine <laughs> and be like, you know what? Yeah, I understand. It's it's it's, it's all bodies yeah. here. It's very similar to mammals. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> okay, so delayed mortality. What is actually killing them when you're like, well, they swam off just fine. But, you know, like you said, up to 12 hours, some of this stuff could be kicking in and, and wiping them out. What is actually going on to kill them? Physiologically, I, I honestly didn't look that up to feel comfortable saying exactly what it would be. Well, then what do you than- what do you think? You know, I think, uh, like, what we're dealing with, like, so we talked about that elevated potassium, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's, as that fish is going through that, now it, it can lead to nerve damage. So, all right, so you have nerve damage. Is that necessarily going to be what kills you? Probably not, but it, could it possibly lead to, how, lead to how your heart is functioning? In this case, they talked about, you know, it's actually leading to, you know, basically cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be an immediate thing. So it doesn't immediately happen. It's as that fish is recovering. How long that takes, I'm not sure. And again, I think it comes down to body size, temperature. Um, they mention a lot in this training. So it's, I mean, similar to like a human body training, dealing with that anaerobic exercise. You know, there's people who do wind sprints all the time. and They get really good at doing that. Fish that are constantly using that do get better at it and can survive it better. So I'm not saying that if a fish gets caught 30 times, it's got a better chance of surviving. But what I'm saying is that some fish are big and don't really move. Other fish are big. And they're moving a lot like crazy for, you know, whatever reason. Maybe they're more aggressive hunters, so they're using that burst speed a lot more. Some other fish is lazily digging around and grabbing, you know, frogs out of the mud in the winter or something. It's basically, there's, there's fish are different. So just because it's a different species doesn't mean that X, Y, and Z for this fish. Individuals do. They have different behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. So you're dealing with that, and then you're dealing with diet. So some fish in the lake might be on a different fish base and some might be on another fish base um and then water quality so like you know in your lake that you guys fish i'm sure that you guys can see something from you know whatever that is northwest to southeast you probably see differences in your water quality and temperatures um, even oh, yeah. things like maybe ph you know it's those are all things that are going to limit that you know it's it's what's exercise your, performance and mood? recovery yeah. yeah um so to say exactly what it would be that leads to that delayed mortality, I, I'm not 100% sure, because on some of these studies, they, you know, they did a, there was a really interesting live bait study where they wanted to look at 
mortality following single hook sucker rigs where the fish is allowed to swallow the bait and now you hook the fish in the stomach. It's a pretty brutal study because literally you just let the fish swallow the bait, you hook the fish in the stomach, you snip the leader, and then they have them in a lake and they follow them around for two years to see what happened with them. And 83% of those fish died. But some of those fish didn't die for you know, almost a year. And when they did the, when they actually went through to look to see what killed the fish, it was things like, you know, the, the hook had almost completely dissolved in a year, but when it passed down to the intestines, it became embedded in the intestines, and that, and that fish died from, you know, an infection in the stomach. Another wow. fish, when they actually set the hook on the fish, they ripped a four-and-a-half-inch hole in the stomach yeah. that healed, but it didn't heal closed. And the fish actually, I mean, this is amazing. This is, this is all, you know, this is a real study. The, they, the fish consumed an 11-inch sucker or 12-inch sucker. It went into the fish's stomach, but then went through that hole and into the body cavity, and then festered and rotted until that fish got sick and died. It, wow. it, it is all these things that can lead to the mortality of the fish later on mm-hmm. to say exactly what it is. And then you also have things that can affect. So say you, know, you have some some sort of, maybe not delay, it's not mortality, but some kind of behavioral effect. So if you're fishing for fish during, say, the spawn or leading right up to the spawn, and now there's some kind of delayed effect, that fish might not spawn now. So we see it here with, you know, American shad. So there's a bunch of people American shad fishing. We've caught shad on rod and reel and then tagged them. So these fish are moving up to the dams to pass over the dam to go upstream to spawn, or in theory they want to pass the dam. But they're moving upstream to spawn. We catch the fish on a rod and reel. We tag the fish, and that fish turns around and makes a beeline for the ocean, deciding not to spawn now because, well, we'll just come back next year. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is what we think is happening. We don't know for sure, um, but... This fish, well, this is this is not worth spawning. This is too dangerous this year, or something along those lines. <laughs> now you've behaviorally affected this, the fish in spawning now. Mm-hmm. So this is some large female that you you know you want those genes to be passed along. Now this fish is caught during spawn, and it decides, well, things aren't right. You know, I'm trying to recover now, and it's it's going to be too much work to spawn now. That fish might not spawn. That's why a lot of those fisheries will be closed during that time. So it's. It's a very interesting question that I don't really have a great answer to, but there's a whole bunch of different delayed effects that can happen. It's, I mean, well, a lot I of this stuff I is on a cellular relate, level. I can relate to all that, though, you know? There's no, yeah. I, I can see it. Yeah. So it's, you know? yeah, it's, I mean, when you're dealing with things on a cellular level, it's really hard to, unless mm-hmm. you're actually going out and doing a necropsy, to say exactly what it was that led to that. Yeah. Um, other than likely in a situation like that, it, it was likely that event. So every, every, every situation is different, and you yeah. might have one that just keeps on going through the process. Yeah, and then one may not. You yeah. know exactly, and that may be happening without us even fishing for them. Yep, something could be happening in their fishy lives where all they do is eat each other. <laughs> but some something could happen. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, "No, nah, I'm not doing this this year." Yep, and it could lead to you know maybe the fish stops feeding the way it normally feeds. Yep, and then it might yep. starve to death. Mm-hmm. The and this could be a dumb question, but I'm gonna at least bring it up because is there a greater delayed mortality at eighty degrees, seventy eight degrees, seventy five degrees? Did, I I would say that probably from everything that I've read, the warmer the water, the quicker you're gonna see those effects. Everything mm-hmm. appears to be related to that so if you have any there was a let me see i just want to make sure i get the number right there was a really interesting study where they actually went through and caught atlantic salmon 
and then followed them afterwards. And they did, let's see here. Um, so from 46 to 64 degrees Fahrenheit was a very low level of angling mortality. But once that water temp got above 64, there was an exponential rise in angling-induced mortality. So, and they found that it was limitations in the maximum cardiovascular performance due to metabolism rate. And that was in response to temperature. So they decided to close that fishery during those times of higher water temps. But what they found is there's an actual, it's an exponential rise once you hit that point. So my guess is if the mortality is increasing exponentially, probably those effects are going to be seen in the same pattern. I don't know for sure, but that would be my guess. But the, you know, like we get back to like where I initially first hammered home the 80 degrees. Yeah. That, that, you know, if, if we're dealing with that, that Canadian study that had like the, the no mortality, did they give a water temp on that or was it 78? Yeah, I think? So they, they went to 78.8 degrees Fahrenheit. That was as high as they went. They didn't, their water temps never got warmer than that during that study. Okay. Do I'm you, pretty sure that's exactly what it was. I don't have the number right in front of me, but okay, I'm almost 100% sure that was the temperature. This is going to be, you know, because it's easy to boil things down to a yes, no. It's yeah. this or that. And when when I've, I've engaged in some discussions, I, I never really put a lot of eggs in one basket other than just like, I guess I'll put my opinion out there right now so I don't have to sit here and try to sugarcoat it. <laughs> if you want to go fishing and it's fishing season, I'm going to let you go fishing and do what you want to do. So, yep. mm-hmm. so with that being said, um, is there a significant difference between 79.9 and 80 degrees? I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. Be- I, all I can yeah. say is that from what I've seen, and I, I'm not going to use the word significant here, but from what I've read, the warmer the water is, the more problems you're going to have. Chance. To put it, yeah. yeah, to put it yep. as simple as I statement. possibly can. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It's just, it comes down to everything. There's things that, so that metabolic rate in fish, no matter what, the warmer the water gets, that's going to increase and that needs more oxygen. As that water temperature increases, it's very, it's honestly a really simple thing. So you have water molecules, and then you have oxygen molecules. And as the water warms, the water molecules start shaking around like crazy, and those oxygen molecules, they, they can't stay it, they can't stay in that, they're forced out. So that's why you literally lose that oxygen. So that, that's not going to change. So that's, that's a certain, and we know the, the metabolic rates are going to come up. We also know that everything that happens with that anaerobic exertion, it's, it's different from fish to fish and from species to species, but again, we know that that happens. So again, you're dealing with the fish size, the water temperature, the time of the year, whether the fish has just spawned. There's all these things that we know affect the fish, and it appears that from everything that's been discussed for the majority of fish species out there, from what I read, the warmer the water is getting, again, the more problems you're going to have. More okay. temps, more problems. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's definitely, there's a reason that we do our work during cool water temps, for what it's worth. So you're looking at the sciences and fisheries management. We're trying to do everything when we're going to hurt the fish the very least possible. And we try and do that during low water temps. All right. Now I'm going to, I'm going to start getting into like some very unscientific measurements. So when I was a young lad, I would swim in my grandmother's pond and like, I don't know, I might've been five foot tall at the time. My feet would be frozen. 
And, yep. you know, I'd stratify. I'm like, man, is this, is this thermal climb like there? But then there's like, there's like almost like a three tiered cake here of really hot water that where your head and, you know, your face is. And then you're like, okay, it's halfway. And then, you know, reasonable. And then it got really cold. So then you kind of lay flatter to try to stay <laughs> not frozen. Yep. And plus there's sea monsters down deep. So you keep your feet up and, <laughs> um, you know, I, it's not a perfect gradual change when it comes to that water temperature through the column. Um, you could have 85 degree water temps, but that might go down. I mean, do you have an average or, cause I'm just going to guess if, if, if there's ever any of that like water column study, uh, two or three feet. Does that seem about right? To get to the thermocline? No, to, to get to like the next, the next like notch. I mean, some of those climbs are 15 to 25 feet deep. Yeah. I, for getting down to that next level, I, I couldn't comfortably say it's so variable by lake to lake. Um, but I mean, you can physically, like you said, to keep it very simple, you can feel that change. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So if the water temperature is 85, let's just say we, we, we always seem to call like, I'm sure there's some on people on our depth finder on our depth finder. So sur- surface temp. Yeah. So surface temp. Know. That's a Let's just say it's 85, but then you go down four foot and it's, I don't know, what would be a reasonable number there? 75? I honestly don't know. I okay. really don't. I couldn't even begin to give you a number, but yeah, let's just, let's, I mean, so let's, let's say 80 or 78 or something like that. 78. And yep. so you catch a fish and you don't horse it up high. You keep it down in, in more of its bread and butter zone Yep. all the way until you net it and stuff. So let's just say, granted, it's 85. It's boiling on the surface. You keep yep. the fish there. You get it up. You you do whatever. You pop it out. Obviously, there's going to be some effect on that fish because it's like 85-degree water temperature. Yep. But if you played it smart, you can kind of still do it. And it's like, yeah, it's it's uncomfortable. You know, I walk into some restaurant kitchens. I'm like, man, this is uncomfortable. Then I walk right back out, and I didn't die. Yep. Um. I, I, there's probably no study doing that, but is if there's anything that you could add to that, like obviously that's better or how about, how about like taking a fish like that and, and giving it the torpedo release? Yep. And I've actually, a lot of the stuff that I read were people saying just that <laughs> when yes, I was reading through the message boards were saying that, well, I take my fish and I put them head first and I shoot them down as fast as I can. I've been dumping them over the side, like a torpedo, just holding them and yep. pop, popping them down. Uh, been doing that a lot you know especially when we're trolling we got the rods out i mean it just seems like laying them in the water just let you know laying them there and doing the the old musky release and holding the tail and you know i don't do any of that anymore i lay it in the water as soon as it's going to sit up i let go now a lot of those fish will swim around on the top and they do their circle and do their thing but this summer i did a lot of that just point their head down push them just drop them and I have, I stay in the area. I've not seen those fish come up. Would you consider that to be a better technique than letting them lay in, you know, the the warmer surface? I would would say if you're going to be fishing for those fish, that, yeah, you would try and get them back. Because, I mean, as we said, some of these fish can be, quote, unquote, trained. But if if they have themselves trained to stay there at, you know, 74-degree water temps down below. So the way the thermocline usually sets up, um, you know, you're going to have your warmer water up top. That's in theory going to have more oxygen, but the fish behaviorally 
whether it's too warm or the food's not there for whatever reason, they're down lower. So if you use trout for an example, they're they're down to thermocline because they just the, the water temps up top are just too high. The limiting mm-hmm. factor then becomes that dissolved oxygen at that range. Now the muskies that you're catching down that deep, are they there because it's a temperature gradient they're trying to use? Is it bait? Is it you know, is there enough oxygen mm-hmm. there that that's why they're down there? There must be if they're down there. Um, but is it, you know, are they always down there? Are they down there all day? Are they moving around? Are they moving up at night to take advantage of now the surface waters are cooling? There's more oxygen up there. Are they moving up? The, I guess the question would be, how does that affect? So you pull that fish out of that area where it's it's obviously going about its normal day. It's, it's comfortable in that area. It's functioning in that area. If you pull it up into that warmer area, I guess I think the biggest thing would be how many, you know, how many other factors are working against that fish by the time that you now you have it there to when you shoot it back down in that time that it was in that warmer water, I guess how, I don't want to say weak, but I guess we'll just say at the point in the stress of that fish's year, how weak is that fish at that point? Um, and I, I honestly don't know, but what I would say is probably what, if it was me and I caught that fish, I'd be doing the exact same thing that you were doing just based on the fact that, all right, well, this fish was obviously down deep for a reason. We know the water temps are warm up top. I want it to get back to where it was as fast as it can. Other than, you know, if you drifted to shore and now you've released this fish in three feet of warm water, I mean, is it going to be so disoriented that it can't even get its bearings about finding itself back down? I mean, a fish that I released yeah. this summer, that fish was unbelievably confused. And I trolled that yeah. fish. I mean, it was a river system, so I don't know. I know there wasn't a thermocline set up there because we had, you know, 2,300 CFS of water coming in. But I was trolling in probably 23 feet of water when I got that fish. And then I was trying to surface release it. And it just wanted nothing to do with it. And that's eventually, honestly, what we did was I got the fish to the point where it started to kick. And it was, you know, fighting me. And I did exactly what you're saying. I put the nose down and I just pushed that fish as hard as I could down. Yeah. And we stayed around for, we went back and forth through that stretch because it was, you know, it was a fish that my dad had caught. He was really worried about it. It was his first really good-sized muskie. And so we hung around there for half an hour waiting to see if she'd come back up. And the fish never came back up. Now, I don't know if that means the fish didn't just fall to the bottom yeah. or not, but yeah. it's... I, it's, you know, the best practice in your mind at the time is probably what is going to make the most sense based on the, you know, the knowledge you have of that fish. Because if I went out and got a fish with all this background that I have, I still have no idea how that fish is. I mean, there's some physiological cues for the stress of a fish, but I don't know what that fish has been experiencing. And other than, you know, a few cues you can kind of look for. I, yeah, I, I mean, I wish I had a better answer for you, but yeah, it's kind of a... Yeah, and there and there probably is no answer. It's 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 an answer. Every fish is a, every fish has an answer, and we we're not going to know that. <laughs> yeah, it would I, be a really interesting study to do. That honestly, I don't think would be too hard to do because mm-hmm. if you know where these fish are setting up, I mean, you can use electronics these days to figure out where the fish are, and you can tag fish, and we know where the fish are. We have tags that we can have temperature, mm-hmm. distance, depth. And we could see how those fish respond to that. It'd be a really interesting study for sure. Yeah. There's something out there that I didn't come across too. So if somebody mm-hmm. knows, please let us know because I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I've done the old heave ho before, like what what Todd was talking about the torpedo, and I've had mixed success with it. I mean, when the fish buries its head in the mud, they don't like <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> okay, so yeah. that one landed. Yeah. All right, the next one, the confused yeah. fish. I love it, <laughs> bank yanking. You, you kind of let one go, you give it the load, whatever, and it just like, it gets confused and it turns around and swims right back up on land. 
Oh, yeah, they just beat themselves. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. had that happen before, too. It happens at the beach all the time with striped bass and bluefish. They turn around and full bore right up onto the beach, and you're like, oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong way. Wrong yeah. way. But, uh, well, I mean, is there anything? I, I, I tried to, like, go through in somewhat of a rough order of, you know, yeah. to the delay mortality. Is there anything major that we're missing or anything that you're like, I really want to hit on? I know you said you have note cards. Yeah, I'm trying to look through my notes right now just to see. Um, I mean, I kind of some of the main points that I highlighted just as far as, you know, if you're out there and you're fishing for these fish, as you're starting to have those warmer temps, it's, again, it's, you know, that the main points that I found going through all these papers is that, you know, duration of air exposure, handling time, that water temperature, and that hooking location, that's pretty much what's significantly affecting the survival of released fish based on the research that I read. Um, and then, again, there's those sublethal effects, so that's the behavioral, physiological, so delayed mortality, reduced reproductive output, et cetera. It's, it all comes back to that, you know, so like I said, like the exposure to air. It can cause a collapse of those gill lamella. You might not notice that, but then that fish might perish afterwards. So it comes back to those, you know, the whole kind of playing it safe points that one of the papers brought up where you're minimal, you minimize, minimal, ah, minimize your angling duration. So we do that. We use really heavy gear, and we try and get those fish in extremely quickly. Um... We try to minimize air exposure. I think everybody really does. It's you know sometimes you get really excited when you have a huge fish and you you know you want to show friends and family. But I think most of us we really try and get those fish. You know, small fish. A lot of us don't even take them out of the water. Um, we avoid angling during those extremes and water temps. That's what we've been talking about here. And then a lot of us do use artificial lures. And from what I've read, a lot of the people who use live bait really are switching over to those quick strike rigs because it sounds like from what I read, a lot of people you know give others a hard time. I'm not familiar with the we don't, there's not really a live bait fishery where I'm fishing, but it, from what I read, people were really giving people using the classic J hook, so like a non-circle hook, a hard time for fishing that way, letting the fish swallow it and run for minutes at a time. Um, and then again, it's that, you know, refraining from angling during reproductive times. A lot of places it's, you know, state law that you can't do that, um, put in place by the managers, but a lot of places people, you know, if they can, it sounds like they don't. So, and that's... Um. What's your opinion on all these water temperatures and fish revival on uh, the live well for the muskie? I've never done anything with a live well, honestly. <laughs> I've never even thought about putting a muskie in a live well. Well, there's I, a lot. I mean, it... It seems to be a big thing on Claire, isn't it? It's, it's a big thing on Lake St. Clair, and that's how you get those people, like, you know, seeing three or four people holding a muskie at, at once. Um, but I just, you know, was, you think about all these high water temperatures and it, it's tough to kick off. What, I mean, what do you think about just throwing it into one of these live wells and trying to let it revive at that point? And I'm just, I'm, I'm like, I'm wondering about that because people are like, oh, you need to, you know, get a live well then get a live well. That'll help that, that fish recover, which I mean, sure, it would, but essentially, with those live wells, it's not like I'm drawing from yeah. the thermocline level. I'm drawing yeah. from what's right out of my transom, essentially. So I'm just, like, pulling in that pot, crappy you, water. He's, I mean, ta he's taking a bath in surface temp. Yeah. 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 Is there, are there, I mean, in those live wells, is there a way to... I mean, I guess that's a thing. Yeah, but I mean, again, those, those surface temps, 
there's a, there's a very good chance that from a lot of the stuff that I read dealing with dissolved oxygen levels, that even though that surface water is quite warm because of especially a large lake like that where you have very small fish biomass comparative to the size of the lake and you have a lot of wind activity, I would think that probably there's pretty good oxygen. I'm just saying that now someone's probably taken a DO level on Sinclair and like it's terrible, but my thought is that if it's already decent by putting in the live well, unless there's some way to add, you know, more oxygen that's useful, so not super saturated, um, I don't really know what you'd get from that. Because I, I know imagine being in a live well is a, stressful. Yeah, especially like a a tin live well that's baking in the sun. It's almost <laughs> like you're ready for... Yeah, I mean, wave active, activity and smashing around. And I, I mean, what's, what's beneficial for, for stuff like that is like... Yeah, I don't have to mess with this fish like I do on the on the surface. Let's keep the boat in gear and let's get five more for a super smashing, awesome. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I know from we worked a lot with bass tournaments. <coughs> one of the states I was working in, and it was not uncommon to have mortality in the the live wells. And so guys had all kinds of different techniques that they used to try and limit that. And some of the tournaments that guys fished, they had, to, I forgot what it was, because like live well buddy, it was some blue liquid that they put in. It was like stress coat for tropical fish. I can't remember exactly what it did, mm -hmm. um, but it was to prevent slime loss and such. And I mean, they still, you'd have a bag with blue water with a bunch of bass belly up and down those, you know, really, really hot summer tournaments. Or even during, you know, they fished during the spawn, because it was allowed mm -hmm. where I was. And... I just, I don't know enough about it. I do know that when we have recovery buckets when we work all the time in the field. So if we work up a fish, we have a recovery bucket. But a lot of times that recovery bucket is, you know, say we worked up the fish in some kind of, say, clove oil or something, something to anesthetize the fish. We put it in the recovery bucket so the fish is able to come back. So when we let it go, it's not just, you know, we're not just releasing, uh, you know, half-numbed-out fish into an area where it could, you know, either wedged under a rock or get eaten by a predator or we want to make sure that, that fish is good to go um I, i'm really not sure what the effect of that i've just never done it before i i've never really other than the bass tournaments i've never seen it done before i, I really i'm not sure i didn't even realize people were doing that to recover muskies honestly okay. i want to take yeah one i mean it, go ahead vance it, yeah they're do, doing it to recover muskies i mean i could understand the the idea of it yep but, uh, you know, you get that fish, you got to mess with it in the water or give it the torpedo thing. You're still like, you know, it's taking time away from fishing. I think that people might be using that as a convenience factor of, you know, when it's ready to, to let that fish go. Uh, yeah. Of doing you know. 15 minutes of recovery time. Yeah. And yeah. Shutting yeah. down shop on a 12 line spread. Exactly. Yep. Um, yep. I mean, as much as you hate to say that, uh, and I could see that that is is another reason why why people would be doing it. But uh, yeah, it's, that's new to me. I it's, I'm just not in a region where I've ever. And again, I just haven't come across that at all. But yeah, it's really interesting. Now I'm going to take this one step further because I know that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna deviate from Todd and Vance are going to know exactly what I'm talking about here. So let's just say you do, you're going to do the live well thing. And we talked about bringing in surface, surface temped water. What if you had a giant bag of ice and you dumped it in there? Would oh that, my God, I was just thinking about that. <laughs> and 
would, would the would the shock of temperature difference because I, I I was also thinking about this when you do the torpedo. So let's just say that fish likes at 70, 70, I don't know, 77, whatever we called it when you were down four foot, not the 85, and you gave him the, yep. a solid torpedo and it went way down to 65. Typically what happens to a fish when it gets shocked, you know, extreme temperature wise, like you can't, you, you bring a fish home from the fair, you can't just dump it in your tank. You kind of let that bag sit there for yep. whatever, an hour or two to, to change. Yep. What happens there? So a really good example of that was I watched a trucking. So they had a fishway where they were able to capture river herring. So it's they're a fairly fragile fish. Um, and they had a whole bunch of them, and they dumped them from the river temp, which was probably at the time 60 to 65 degrees, into a large exactics tank. So those think those big gray tanks that people, you know, they're moving catfish around or whatever, those big exactics tanks that had been mm-hmm. baking in the sun with the top on all morning. And when they put them in that, all the fish died within two minutes. It was instantaneous because they got dumped in there. The temperature, we didn't have a way to measure the temperature, but you reached your hand in and then you touched the water on the river. And it was obviously, you know, 15 degrees at least difference. And those fish just, it was amazing. I've never seen anything like it. And just, boop, all gone. And I've seen it transferring fish into fish tanks from, you know, we've had fish that we, you know, we worked up. We had them in, say, a live well or something or a cooler, and we brought them and put them in another, you know, some kind of holding tank, and someone hadn't changed the water out, and its sun had been, you know, sitting on that water, it really doesn't take long for those fish to just keel over. And if you're talking about fighting a fish, because I was thinking about that, if you're bringing a fish up from, you know, say, 75-degree water, I'm, it's already stressed, whether it be temperature, dissolved oxygen levels, and then all of what goes into fighting the fish. When you bring that fish up to 85-degree water, I don't know what that temperature stress does. I mean, 10 degrees Fahrenheit, is, it is a big change. It's not, you know, we, we're able to, you know, we're, we're not cold-blooded. We're able to deal with those temperature changes. So for us, it's a lot easier where you take a fish that's been, you know, say it's been functioning, it's been training itself at 75 degrees Fahrenheit, and all of a sudden you move it to, you know, say we'll just do an extreme example, say 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That the whole physiology, phys, yeah, physiology of that fish has been trained onto that temperature, that dissolved oxygen level, and they just instantly moved all of that. I don't know enough physiologically what exactly would happen, but it's not like us where we can, you know, kind of go on the fly here and we can regulate our temperature. It, things are going to happen. <laughs> and yeah. it's, I'm sure the researchers, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of research out there that you can look up on cold shock or heat shock. And my guess is it happens a lot faster than most people think just based on what i saw that i mean that blew me away and i've been working with fish at that point i've been working with fish for 10 years dealing with all kinds of different scenarios and it was it blew my mind how quick those fish died and it was it was exactly what it was i went and grabbed the other tank that was sitting empty and i pulled the top off and the air that came out hit me in the face was you know easily over 100 degrees fahrenheit i was like this is exactly what happened those fish got dumped in a superheated cooler essentially and the top got put on and they just gone would there be in your experience, like this is stuff like we didn't even ask you to, to look up. In in your opinion, is it worse to go from cold water to hot water? Like you get caught a fish in cold water, dump it in hot water, or catch a fish in you know hot water and dump it in cold? Or is it just like terrible across the board? Now I, I would be leaning towards yeah, I, hot to cold. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. It, I in my mind, just not knowing any of it, never looking it up, I'd say it's just terrible across the board. And again, it's kind of 
what are all the things leading up to that? You know, if you have a perfectly healthy fish and you do that, I, I really don't know. I would just say across the board you're going to have problems that might differ, um, but I imagine it's going to be fairly bad. I mean, I, so one time we had a bunch of, um, I can't remember what they were. It was either mummy chugs or golden shiners. We were going ice fishing, and my buddy had forgot to put the aerator in there, and I knew that the tank that the fish came out of was very, it was very filthy. There were high ammonia levels in there. Very little oxygen, and you, you had to, when you move the fish out of your tank to go ice fishing with your bait, you really had to have an air stone in there, or those fish were just going to keel over. And we, we, I looked in there, all on the surface, trying to grab oxygen. They were all mouthing across mm-hmm. the surface. And I was like, oh, geez, this is terrible. And they came out of a basement that was probably 55 degrees. And we, it was the middle of wintertime. We pulled over on the side of the highway where I knew there was a brook. We ran down there, and we started cupping cold water into there. And because they were stressed on low oxygen... And they all just died. I mean, it was amazing. Again, it was just, whoop. I was like, okay, well, we tried. It's, <laughs> so it's, it's definitely, you know, you have a series of events stacking up on top of each other that can make it a lot worse. But for perfectly healthy fish, I I, I don't know. I think you, the goal is to try and limit any large temperature flux, whether it be positive or negative temperature. Uh-huh. It's when we work with fish, we want to keep everything at an equilibrium if we can. We don't want to put, we're already putting stress on the fish by either angling for them or working them up for science. The, the goal is to try and keep everything else as constant, constant as we possibly can to limit any kind of, for lack of a better word, accidents. It's amazing. Vance, do you have any other? all, you know, a lot of this stuff is, I mean, I don't want to say it's a pain because I did read pretty much everything I'm telling you is based off of what I've looked over the last few weeks here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of people that have other experiences that, you know, could be completely opposite, but it's, you know, I went through the scientific literature to really look and see as people are really studying this, what they found. Um, it would be great in talking with you guys about bringing these fish up trolling or jigging, because I know it's, especially the jigging seems like it's really starting to become popular. And if you're jigging fish down that deep, you know, what happens? And what you could probably do, and I wish I'd thought of this, is look at, you know, say, lake trout studies. You know, people are fishing the Great Lakes or any of the big lakes up here. They're fishing for lake trout. They're fishing down very deep in the summertime, mm-hmm. and they're releasing those fish at the surface. I, I, aside from even just the barrow trauma of bringing those fish up to a different pressure, it would be really interesting to look and see what those temperature and those oxygen changes are and how that affects those fish. And, I mean, you can do it through tagging studies. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if someone has done it for another species, and even though it's not the same species... It's, you know, physiologically, a lot of fish are very similar. So, and, and this is probably something I'm going to do over the next couple of days, because now I'm, I'm very interested in that, <laughs> just seeing, you know, how, how that is affected. But yeah. I wish I had a better answer for you guys on that, because I know it's probably a question a lot of people have. Oh, yeah, I mean... Like, Someone out there has the answer. Well, the thing is, when we talk about this stuff, I mean, we, we, we kind of stayed on the path that we wanted to go down, but you start branching off on this, and it, it, next thing you know, you're talking about a completely different subject. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's so, you know, relatable, you know, everything's so intertwined on this. Um, yep. But it is. That's what makes the science so difficult, honestly. Yeah. You're trying to chase down, you know, some effect and a whole sea of effects and all of the effects. I mean, the fish respond in the same species completely differently sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it can be very, very tiring. <laughs> yeah. Now, Vance, do you have any other kind of like wrap up questions? No. Todd? I'm good. I mean, it's that was great. 
All right. Well, I'm great, going great to conversation there. I've been jotting down some notes a little bit as I was going, just some some bullet points because, you know, we did not want to take the stance of this is good, this is bad. I already gave my opinion is if it's if it's legal and it's the time to fish, I, it's not for me to tell you what to do. Um, so you know, everyone can make their own personal choices. But some of the stuff that I written down. So Kevin, if if I'm off a little on this, I scribbled this as fast as I could because I didn't want to miss out. I can't like really write and listen at the same time. So, yep. Um, the Canadian study, something that stood out to me: poor handling techniques versus great handling techniques. And when I say poor handling techniques, um, we're still talking about musky specialized. What you know, I would say on the one extreme of acceptable for musky anglers, like yep. you said, uh, length of time in the net, extended time out. The fish blood sample when they came went to kick off. The fish was there was really no major difference between the two. Yep, surprisingly, that's what they found. But between the extremes there. So, my little takeaway on this is if someone's trying their hardest, they might, and it's and it's not up to where you feel yours should be. You know, like where that person should be compared to an opinion of another person. That fish might not be any more worse for wear if proper attempts were, were made. Yep. Uh, muskies prefer are right around 71 degree water temperatures, Fahrenheit. Yep. In, in that Tennessee reservoir anyway, that's what they found. Okay. Whether that changes as you move to, you know, out of the Ohio basin up into the Mississippi or to the Great Lakes, I'm not sure. But based on that study, that's with no dissolved oxygen in theory being an acting variable, yes. Okay. So delayed it's, more... T- Go ahead. I was just going to add to that, that nine parts per million is basically, that's optimum dissolved oxygen for a muskie. Mm-hmm. And that's, I found that in a couple of different, basically 8.6 to 9.7 parts per million. So if anybody has a question on, you know, what exactly is a level for dissolved oxygen? That's the same as, I believe it's milligrams per liters as well. It transfers over. So you'll see it in both forms. And I could be wrong, so someone check that before you go any further. But yeah, I just wanted to add that to that other study as well. So okay, so I'm gonna I'll, I'll go one thing. Muskies can survive up to like, as low as four parts per million. They prefer around nine parts per million. Just basic numbers. What is a really high dissolved oxygen? I don't know. I don't know what super saturation looks like. I mean, I didn't. I is, is it thirteen? Is it two hundred? Yeah. I don't know. I was looking at scales that you know they had up to twelve, and that was dealing with trout and cooler water because cooler water can hold more. Um, but I know that you can. When we worked with Atlantic Salmon, you can, they were calling it super saturate your water. So we have cold water, we're putting pure oxygen into there. And when we accidentally, quote unquote, super saturated the water, basically the fish was just a lunatic, just flying around like crazy. <laughs> um, and it actually ended up hurting itself because it was smashing the side of the tank so much. Oh. And so you had to be really careful with, we had very strict dissolved oxygen levels that we had to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, though, I know that. It's when I one of the papers I was reading. It did say something along the lines of "too much of a good thing is a bad thing," but what no. that actually means for a level, I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I, I don't think it's something that in nature you probably come across that often. I guess if you have an extremely weedy lake, you could potentially get more oxygen coming in than you'd need, um, but that you could also have the same effect at night. If you have that many plants giving off that much oxygen, my guess is at night when they're not producing that much oxygen that much oxygen is being used and you're probably going to have potential nighttime fish kills 
And I don't know of any specific examples of that, but that's just what I'd be thinking if you have plants putting up that much oxygen that you could, in fact, have the opposite at night. Hmm. But that's just, I, that might be completely wrong. It's just a thought I had while I was saying it. Okay. Um, <laughs> during some of these studies, they were cited like under 5% delayed mortality. Yep. S- some yep. spe- Well, they specialized catch and release fisheries. Yep. It, you know, in that. Now, I've seen some people cite that, I don't even know what they were citing, up to 40% delayed mortality. And the only thing that I can probably say to that is it might not be, uh, that could be on a general population of people catching just exactly. you know, pontoon pontoon boaters, you know, showing maw and quick FaceTime this and all this stuff like that. So extremely poor handling. On average, I'd probably going to say you're going to be north of 5%, but if you had a yep. lake that was, you know, handled by, you know, that acceptable handling of muskies you should expect under five percent or maybe around there um, yep that's what they said the majority of the time it was under five percent yeah and that was a whole i believe it was 80 different papers that they cited in that review okay that's quite a few yep and that was including marine and freshwater fish okay um water temperature generally speaking the higher the temperature the higher the rate of delayed mortality now would that or also- even direct mortality Okay. Yeah. They could they could die right in hand. Yep. Yep. Um, and we like when when you talked about the Atlantic salmon um, with exponentially getting worse, like uh, whatever above sixty five or sixty seven. I forget the exact number. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we've ever experienced a water temperature. I mean, it, I guess without knowing, and I don't think there is an answer. Where is that hard jump for muskies? If there's going to be like, okay, yeah, you're going to get some, you're going to get some, and then all of a sudden, 87 degrees, you're just going to skyrocket. So, yeah, in my sure. mind, it, it, it's a it's a gray gray area because first off, it you're is, not yeah. you're not catching, you know, 200 of these things in a day, and you can you know follow them and stuff. But 80 degrees just always seems to be what comes up. But it really could yep. be the really bad zone could be like 86. It could be 84. I, I don't know. Yep. It could be 100. Um, that was one little note thing. And then the other thing, really what trumps everything is every fish is an individual. Exactly. And Uh every experience with a fish will be different. You cannot replicate it twice. You could catch the same fish twice, but it's going to be in different conditions of health. It's going to be in different stages of its life. You're, there's so many variables to try to have. For someone to come into a room and say, this is how this is going to be for everything across the board is just as wrong as someone's, you know, as, as the next guy saying that yeah. there's, there's nothing right. So yep. you can have the, absolute- I, think that's, I think that's, I think you're, 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 you're touching like the biggest thing that we deal with here. Every, every fish we catch is different, you know, and you know, sometimes they come in and you're like, okay, you're good. I'm just going to water release you. And you know, that flip, that other hook, now it's in more time. You know what I mean? Yep. Every situation is so different. And sometimes you see people, and I know some people, I'm sure there's been people watching me. It's like, well, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. Yep. Well, he doesn't realize that it's got a hook in the eye. It's got a hook in the throat. It's got a hook in, and one's in their mouth. And I'm trying to cut everything I can. And, uh, yeah, I took a lot of time in the net. 
and the fish wasn't breathing, but I'm doing it to try to save its life. Yep. And getting hooks stuck in my hand uh, <laughs> while we're doing it because I'm trying to save them. You know, it was a lot easier when I was a kid and we just like kept them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You didn't have to worry about all then that. It's a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's so many different variables and, you know, I, people get really hard on other people for this stuff. It's kind of sad. Yeah. And you see a lot of the people. Yeah. When I was reading, you know, these posts, it was very obvious that you had people arguing with each other that were just as passionate about the resource and what was best for the resource. It's just varying opinions on, you know, based on experience or honestly, a lot of it is what they're seeing as, you know, their peers are saying something and that's what they've just, now it's a belief and it's really hard to change someone's belief. And, you know, pretty much you're not going to be able, there's a lot of people who you really aren't going to be able to change their belief now, even if you have hard science, um, it's, it's, it's ingrained in their brain now. And so it's really difficult you can give them hard science and they're going to have this bias now that, nope, that's, there there must be some other reason that, you know, it happens with fisheries managers all the time. Like, oh, well, nope, you're saying this because your funding comes through this. And it's, it's like, well, we have, this is, this is the hard science here, but. They have now. It's it's just it's how they were brought up. It's how some experience they had, and it's it's really hard. To, I mean, you're reading these things. You can tell that these people care about the fish and they care about the fishery, but they're just packing their heads together with one another. And then you have a bunch of people who, like you know, me going on there. I didn't have. I wasn't communicating with anybody. I was just reading it. It makes you wonder how many people are wanting to get into the sport, go on there and see that, and they're like, oh my god, like what. What is right? Like, what are we supposed to actually do? Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, <laughs> yeah. really, you just want to go musky fishing, so you're trying yeah. to do it the best way you can. But your peers are fighting with each other about what's right, and that's why I just went to honestly to the you know scientific literature because I was like, well, okay, I mean, it's I won't have to deal with any of that here. I'm just going to read what the science says, and you know, a really interesting point that you know kind of brings a lot of this barreling down on us is. They found with a bunch of different species, I mean, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, walleye, bluegill. They actually found that. The mortality increases in catch and release fishing in temperatures within the species specific water preference, temp- the temperature preference, rather than beyond it. So you're starting to already see that increase in mortality well within the temperature that, that fish wants to be in. So there wasn't anything for muskies, but they found with those species that I just mentioned and some more that so say we have you know people have made a threshold for what is preferred you know science has shown say for a largemouth bass and i'm just going to completely make these numbers up here but let's just say 65 to 75 i believe it's higher than that but this is their preferred range before the fish is even past 75 they're finding that because now we're dealing with a higher temperature that you're actually increasing that mortality Hmm. so again it comes back to the you know you have those warm temperatures the warmer they get the harder things are going to fall on those fish. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to quote as best I can. If anyone listens to Rogan, had Neil deGrasse Tyson on, and he said that there's uh, scientific truths, which that's what we tried to put out today. Personal truths that it's what you believe in it might not necessarily be true, but to to the masses. And then there's political truths, and that is if you say <laughs> this thing long enough, people are gonna believe it. And yep. th- that's probably where this 80 degrees came from is that, you know, you're, you're hammering all this stuff home and you say it enough, you get another guy that's saying enough. And all of a sudden these political truths turn into personal truths and people aren't going to change nothing for any of this. And, you know, 
we just we're just trying to throw some scientific truths out there to do this but and i guess on a slightly related note what what kevin just went on saying that he he was an outsider didn't really know about this 80 degree thing he hopped on these forums and saw these people fighting and what kind of like we hit on this what kind of image does that show and it could be some people they're like you know what i'm i'm just a lurker i hop on this i'm like oh my gosh this is not only are these fish really hard to catch i'm going to get lambasted for how i handle them and there's like times to where sometimes when the season opens, say you have a, a state that has seasons, I have one weekend to fish for them or I'm going to be crucified. Yep. And that that person may have, you know, may now not buy a fishing license, may yep. now not join Muskie's Inc., may not be supporting mom and pop shops because they're seeing all this. And, and I'm going to an extreme on this, but yep. that's one last that, that's one less voice. That's one less person out there that might be your next fishing buddy. Fishing friends come and go. I mean, I've gone through a few of them in my time, and and it's just one of those that could be your next best friend, as as yep. corny as that sounds. But it's like this inner fighting of this I'm right, you're wrong. It's it's a sliding gray scale. That's all it is. Yep. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, you, Andy, Andy, and, 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 and what you just said right there, I mean, if you take that, and you bump it down to where we've seen people talking about, I don't think you should fish if it's over 75 degrees. Yeah. Okay, so at that point, we did not fish the spawn here in New York. They do not open the season. Opening weekend was extremely warm. And I'll tell you, if they would bump that down to 75 and say we couldn't fish for them, we would still be waiting to fish. All yep. summer long. And right now it's still, you know, it's been warm. There's been some days it was a little under 75. There's been, you know, it's back up above there now, 76, 77. So we'd be waiting to fish, and we would go fish for them for, what, six weeks before the season closed. And then at that point, people would say, why am yeah. I buying a fishing license? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why, the, the, why know, is the, the... The extremes can get crazy. Yeah. Why is the state putting money into this program if we can't touch these fish? Yeah. And it's true. I mean, I saw uh, somebody asked me at the boat ramp. They have one of those weather buoys on Chautauqua Lake. Um, that'll tell you, uh, like, you know, the peaks of wave heights and um, mm -hmm. wind direction and stuff. And they were like, can you access that to get water temperatures? I was like, and I'm sure you could. I don't know where you, where you go to access it, but they were all nervous about the water temperature still. Um, mm. Same as it was when the season opened. Yeah. It happens That's every year. You, you, you just, you just, <laughs> this happens every single year. Mm. Here's the opener. What happens after the opener? It goes from opener to, uh, you know, people are pushing, you know, springtime, small baits, opener, big, you know, here's our opening fish, blah, 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 goes right into water temperatures. And like just extreme hate for about two solid months. And then people start being like, oh yeah, it's fall time, baby. Big fish, big times, big fun. Let's go. And then it's like, uh, you have three hurricanes roll in and the frozen. then the lake froze over and we got, and then you got show season. Of snow. Yeah. 
and then it's, yeah. and then it's you're right back into small baits springtime two months of hay <laughs> big baits big fish baby fall snow again it's just the same shit every single year and, about that stuff and you know i i also i like to think most people can see through this they can just people will say well you you shouldn't be fishing because of X, Y, Z. And it really could be, I can't go fishing, so I don't think you should go <laughs> fishing either. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it is what it is. We all should just get along. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, if you're dealing with such a small, I mean, the muskie fishing community is tiny. It's obvious. Mm. It's a very specialized sport. It takes a lot of time. And, I mean, in my case, and I think most people's cases, it takes quite a bit of money. It's, you know, you're putting a lot into it. it. It's something that someone really wants to get into it. If they're going to get into it, they really want to. And to potentially give off this vibe of being a bunch of elitists that are angry with each other, kind of showing an angry community, you're going to push away people. I mean, I'm a perfect oh, example yeah. of that. I musky fish, and I have musky fish with no one. I have musky fish with people that I bring musky fishing that want to catch a musky that I'm friends with. That's it. I haven't I haven't sought out anybody up here to musky fish with just because I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm very shy in that sense. I do that with all the fishing techniques that I use. I mean, with the carp fishing, it's a very specialized community. And it's a very small community, and I kind of reached out to a few people, and that was about it. And it's, I'm very, you know, hesitant when I, you know, I hadn't really read the message boards, but I've seen a few YouTube videos when I started getting really into musky fishing probably, I don't know, it would have been 2000. 2015 when I moved up here and it was very much I was a few very cocky arrogant people who were catching a lot of big fish but had a very uh, opinionated way about presenting themselves and they had a lot of views and I was like all right well these are obviously the people who are respected in this community I was like this is it I'm kind of turned off by it so I just kind of casually just went about fishing on my own and it's, mm-hmm. you know, that's just who I am. But there's a, I'm sure there's a lot of people like me who kind of seek that, the quieter side of fishing. And, you know, they want to make a few close friends and, you know, share it with people around them. And it's really hard for people like me when you go on these message boards and you see this. And I know that these are the minority, you know, the people who are very loud and outspoken who want to go out there and they want to be noticed. But mm-hmm. it's very difficult for people who are coming from the outside. I mean, just look at fly fishing. There's a lot of people who really want to get into fly fishing. They go to a river and they see a guy with $3,000 in clothes on, only fishing dry flies. They see you with a wet fly and they start screaming at you. If it's not a dry fly, it doesn't count. That person's not going to want to fly fish anymore. They're going to go on to do something else. Uh And so if you have a very small group of people and, you know, the the agencies, if you're, you know, you're, we're we're public public, uh, servants to the fishing community, if your fishing community is very small and you're not recruiting people, eventually you're not going to have support or as much support because financially you're a much smaller group of people. You're putting in less money to the actual pool of recreational fishermen. So I feel like any point that you can pull people into your sport, you should take it. And so, I mean, I understand there's definitely times to be like, hey, you know, this probably isn't the best practice. How can we do this a little bit differently? But to just outright just bash people like people do, it's, I mean, it'll literally... It, it's going to harm it if people keep acting that way because people that are being recruited into the sport, unless they're those very loud, outspoken people who want attention, I believe people will shy away. I just wanted to fish, so I just kept going with it, but I really haven't become part of the community just because what's out there that you initially see growing up in an area where we don't have muskies, I'm looking 
from the outside in, to me, it didn't quite appeal. Yeah. So it's just something to think about. For sure. Yeah. I don't think people realize they're doing it because they're in that community yeah. already. But yep. people are looking from the outside in all the time. Mm-hmm. Are, are you saying that, like, sayings that are to the effect of, if you don't know how to hold a fish, you shouldn't be fishing for muskies? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure that my first email to you probably got, I don't even know, two, two and a half years ago now. I'm pretty sure I said something along the lines of, you guys talk musky fishing and only musky fishing. And that's why I enjoy this podcast, because you're <laughs> fish and let fish, basically. And I was like, that's great. That's exactly it. I'm all for educating people and having an educated fishing public. But the only way to become educated is to become part of it. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to keep pushing people away, then you're never going to have educated anglers out there. It's, it's a very difficult, it's, you know, it's, you get a couple loudmouth people who really do ruin it for a lot of people. And being yeah. that I'm on both sides of it, I'm on the professional side of you know, fisheries management, and I'm also on the recreational side of using those resources. It's I get to see that fine line, and it's you. You just want you want to recruit people, recruit the people, you know, become let them become part of the community, and then you have those discussions. Mm-hmm. You don't tell people you have discussions, and that's why I like what you guys do because it's discussions, and it makes people think. It gives people, oh well, you know, I never really thought about it this way, and these are you know they're not telling me how to do this, but this is a different way of looking at it. So, it's, and like I said, with all the stuff we talked today, I'm not a fish physiologist. I'm not a chemical hydrologist. So, a lot of what I said today, if there's something that isn't quite right, I would really hope that somebody would let us know. Um, mm-hmm. But what I am is very interested in musky fishing. I mean, none of my research does anything with musky. So, all of this research that I've done is for pleasure and to help you guys and the, you know, the musky community understand the stuff a little bit better. So, if something is wrong, I do apologize. <laughs> but please, let me know so we can fix that. Right. Um, that's that's. I think this is great what we get to do here. It's wonderful. I I think that that's a great note to end on. Yeah, um, I will say two things very quick that are only going to take one second. Let's hear one. It. Your koi muskie. Oh. That was something very very simple, and all it was was that it was likely an injury, and there's something called a chromatophore that makes the color in the fish that did not come back, and it was just meat color. I wanted to tell you that for a month and a half here. Yeah. So yeah. there's that, and also male muskies can get over 50 inches. It's just unlikely, but my friend did sample a 53-inch muskie that was a male with her research on the St. Lawrence. So they do exist. Yeah. They're just very rare. Interesting. So it is yeah. possible. Those are the only two things that have been burning in my head for the past few weeks. So That's very cool. interesting, because who, who was it in the Fish Commission? What was his, like the... The manager or whatever of the the fisheries never had one really over forty. Larry Hines. Larry Hines. Thirty two years. Thirty two years in PA netting the fish. He had a forty three. Okay. Now I know I and he had a forty three inch male. He said it was the biggest one they ever handled in thirty two years. So I was very netting. surprised, but I got a picture yeah. of it and it was giant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah! Wow. And I and I, I know there. I, I know I've seen. You know, I know there have been other other ones documented, but boy, it is it is rare. Yep, I mean, I yep. think that's the thing. Like when you catch that big one, it's more likely a female. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like that with I believe most fish. The fish that I work with, it's all like that. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Very common. Very interesting. That's why I like to use generalizations on this show. Yep. Oh no, that's why I, I was just like, oh, they'll think I'll get a kick out of this because you, you guys mentioned that last week, and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I just got a picture of a fifty-three incher a few months ago. I'll have to tell them about that. Excellent. That's awesome. All right. So that's it. Kevin, you. our fish biologist, we almost went two hours on this. This was a long yeah. one. Well, it was, it was great. 
these are very neat ones. All right. Big thanks, Fatty Z Musky Products, Muddy Creek Fishing Guides, St. Croix Rods, Vicks Marine Sports Center, Ranger Boats, and Muskies Inc. Uh, we've pretty much hammered home the last 20 minutes of why it's important to be united. Uh, Muskies Inc. is that united voice, and it's not that expensive to be in, especially in a sport that's very expensive. If you buy one bait a year, you could probably yeah. <laughs> hop onto Muskies Inc. So big thanks to them. Um, it's getting to be uh, fall, fall fatties, banging fish baby. Uh-huh. Good luck fishing. Thanks for listening.